0: Uh, thank you so much for being here, and, and yeah. seriously, I think your book has done a lot to help people understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur for real. Uh, um. <laughs> yeah, no, for, for real being the key. Yeah, exactly, story. because the movies so are, are kind of misleading. Yeah. So I thought maybe you could just uh, tell a little bit of your personal story, how you became an entrepreneur in the first place, and maybe f- just give us a sense of was entrepreneurship different today than it was when kind of you got into the business?
1: <laughs> well, it's actually kind of getting back to that a little bit, but. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we uh, were all at Netscape, all the founders of, of LoudCloud, and uh, we were acquired by a company called AOL. Um, and AOL kind of was a Different, you know, we were all very tied to the Netscape mission, and you know, they had a new mission, and so we got this idea while we were at AOL um, that, you know, there there needed to be a company uh, that basically helped the AOL customers. So AOL, the, the AOL had this thing where uh, you would plug into their e-commerce kind of mall. They had it was called like the AOL Mall, and it was actually bigger e-commerce site at that time than Amazon, if you can believe that. Uh, In terms of traffic, at least, probably not in revenue. Um, But, you know, they would charge people $10 million a year to be in the mall. And that was basically the idea. (laughs) Uh, But the problem with it was as soon as you got in the mall, um, you would get all the AOL traffic. And in those days, AOL was half the traffic on the Internet. Um, Like, literally half the traffic on the Internet. And so basically everybody's site would just, like, tip over and explode. Because they had no idea how to build a scalable. in Nordstrom's didn't know how to build a scalable <laughs> site in 1999. Uh, and so we got the idea, well, somebody ought to just kind of run that infrastructure for them, like there ought to be like a computing cloud um, and we could call it loud cloud. Uh, and that was kind of the original idea of the company. Um, but you know, the, the, probably the biggest difference you know, then and to now is there was no knowledge on how to build a company. Like it was, it was kind of a completely black art, there was nothing written. You know, there were some reporters had written things, but there was really nothing about, like, how you be an entrepreneur or how you start a company or how you raise money or <laughs> what venture capital is or, you know, what participating preferred means or any of these kinds of things.
0: So now you see entrepreneurs coming into your office, you know, I don't know, I can't even imagine how many times per day. Yeah. Uh, and you said, yeah. as an aside, we're kind of, getting back to what it was like uh, in the early days, the late 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, on the one hand, entrepreneurs today are armed with a massive amount of information about how to start a company. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a lot of people have not lived through that experience of, you know, of bad times. Yeah. Give us a compare and contrast.
1: Yeah, so, so in 19, and a lot of the, actually, the genius of the Lean Startup came out of, uh, uh, it was a little bit of a reaction to, the things that people like me did in 1999. <laughs> and uh, just what happened then was there was so much, people were so hyped about the internet and everybody was so excited in the world about it that investors would put kind of unlimited money into companies uh, kind of in advance of them having product market fit. So you would just kind of be a company, you'd have an idea and they'd be like, oh my God, that's just like you know, eBay or that's just like Amazon. Here's $30 million. <laughs> uh, and that $30 million would then destroy the company. Like, it, because what would happen is you have $30 million, what are you gonna do? You have to invest it. You can't just let it sit in the bank. Because so like they believe that you are gonna get to product market fit, these guys with all the money. So clearly you're gonna get there, so you better start like getting on with it. Um, but the enemy of product market fit is a lot of motherfuckers <laughs> running around your company like talking to each other, confusing themselves. And that's sort of what happened to all of us in the late 90s Um, and then you know then all the money went home and that just stopped for a long time and I think that and then uh, you know mostly Eric was able to articulate look no 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 this is not how you build a company. Um, You know finding like the product you know that the market wants is a really hard and complex process and you need extremely tight communication and discipline and all these things, and you know and everybody like because of all the wreckage, kind of adopted that, uh, or like you know all the smart people adopted that, and we started to get these companies that were kind of constructed in a much better way in the kind of late 2000s than they ever were in the late '90s um, but interestingly, because of the success of those <laughs> companies uh, investors are basically at the same place they were in 1999. They're like, oh my god, that looks just like Uber. You know, it, it's Uber for
0: dogs. Uh, <laughs> hey, can I invest in that? Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. And so and here we are. <laughs> so, so skipping ahead in your story a little bit, um, you know, you tell a story in the book about selling LoudCloud to EDS and retaining some of the IP so you could do Opsquare. And you said something that really caught my attention, which is that you had to ship a product even though you knew it was the wrong product, but you felt like the only way to find out what the right product was, was to do it anyway. Um, can you kind of talk about what you learned by building the wrong product and what that was like?
1: Yeah, so that, you know, that was probably the hardest decision I ever made as CEO. It's interesting, everybody kind of, like when I get credit for a decision, that's always kind of changing LoudCloud into Opsware because people go like, oh my God, you like changed the business when it was public and you, know, and you sold all the customers and the revenue, that was By the been- way, this is the time when
0: people went public like yeah, really yeah, very yeah. Early in the process. Of <laughs> yeah, the right. Company. We, we yeah. went
1: public when we were eighteen months old. So, uh, but, but I don't recommend that. Do not try this at home. Know. Yeah, but you know, everybody always thought that was a really good decision. But you know, in reality, intellectually, it was an easy decision because the choice was, you know, certain bankruptcy versus probable bankruptcy. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're ever faced with that, go for probable bankruptcy.
0: It's, it's better. <laughs> That's good advice.
1: Uh, But, you know, emotionally it was tricky, but intellectually it was very simple. This one was much more complex because the engineering team, you know, we had this product that we had kind of hoisted out of the cloud business. Um, And the engineering team was like, look, it's not ready to go to market. Even we would have problems using it, like, and we designed the product for us. (laughs) And so, like, how in good conscience can you possibly try and sell this to somebody on the outside? You know, you're the devil. Um, And I was like, you know, so it wasn't quite that strong, but it was getting there. Uh, You know how engineering teams get when you wanna ship something they don't wanna ship. Uh, But for me, you know, in all my years of product, the one thing that I kind of learned was uh, your success as a company um, really depends on how linear a path you walk to the right product. So if you think there's like some platonic form of like, this is the perfect product for every customer, and then where you are. And then how straight a line can you walk from here to there is really a function of are you building the most important feature first every step of the way, or are you building like a random feature over here and then over here, and then you know later you get to the important feature so it just takes you longer, uh, and then you get there too late, and then your company fails. That's kind of the failure case. And so I was completely obsessed with this idea that we had to walk as straight a line as possible because You know, I had almost bankrupted the company (laughs) once and I didn't think I was gonna get a a second chance. Um, And so I just felt like the knowledge inside of, you know, Opsware about what the market needed was just too shallow. We knew what we wanted, but we weren't like Goldman Sachs or FedEx or any of the guys we were trying to sell to. We were running a cloud computing business. They were running their own data center. And so I felt like, and then the difference in knowledge between like asking a customer what they want or asking them for $500,000 for a product is like, you get a really much higher quality uh, answer when you ask them for $500,000. And so, so that was kind of the idea. And man, that, did that turn out to be right because the things they needed were almost completely different than the things that we would have built had we not uh, tried to sell it not that successfully. Um, but you know, Getting in market, getting knowledge, turning the product,
0: and walking a straight line, invaluable. Mm-hmm. So before I ask another question, I want to remind folks we're going to take questions from the audience in a moment. And uh, we do this uh, a little bit differently. We're not going to have people come up to the mic and tell us their life story. Uh, instead, there's a URL, which we're going to put on the screen. You can grab it on your on your mobile device. The URL is case sensitive. So if you don't know what that means, ask the engineer sitting next to you. Uh, but type it in exactly. You can edit questions; they will show up on this high-tech piece of wizardry called an iPad, and I will attempt to ask them to Ben. So please, if you have questions, uh, be on your device. Uh, I think the phrase that you you know is most associated with you in the in the work you've done recently is the struggle. Yeah. That you know that being a CEO, you know, in the movies it looks glamorous. I feel like when we hear the stories of successful startups, they've usually been whitewashed to make the founder seem great and kind of yeah. erase the difficult parts. Um, you know, I feel like you've kind of injected a really important dose of reality into that, say, hey, that's not what it's actually like day to day. And so the people that are out there right now struggling, they're not necessarily doing it wrong. Yeah. You, know, you talked about that difficult strategic shift you had to make to become Opsquare. Do you have another favorite story of just uh, a really difficult choice, really difficult stru- thing you struggled through that ultimately uh, you know, taught you something important?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do. So, and it's interesting with the struggle is that it, the, the biggest surprise to me when I wrote the thing was like how universal it was because when I was... CEO, uh-huh. like, and I would ever talk to another CEO and ask them how their company was going. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, it's fantastic! It's unbelievable! It's amazing! It's the most wonderful thing I've ever done in my life. And you know, I was always just like, holy shit, my company is so fucked. <laughs> like, I don't feel like that at all. <laughs> I feel like I want to like throw up and shoot myself in the head. Um, but then once I wrote it, everybody was like, oh no, that's me too. So that was yeah. Uh, it turned out they were all lying. Um, so, my, so the, the one that, that, that has just been so impressive to me that I've been involved in is we invested in this company called TinySpec, which most of you probably haven't heard of, uh, which was founded by a gentleman by the name of Stuart Butterfield, who, who many of you may have heard of. Um, and Stuart had kind of previously, uh, in like 2001, set out to build a uh, massively uh, multiplayer online game and, um, and then, but he was just him and, you know, as a team it was him and his wife in Canada, and they didn't have enough money to do that, so they ended up kind of pivoting into, like, a piece of the game, which was kind of the avatar manager, and, and that became a company or a product called Flickr. Um, and so we invested in TinySpec, you know, almost a decade later, uh, and Stuart was gonna build the game. And... <laughs> Finally. And the game was called Glitch. And, Glitch uh, was, uh, you know, it was basically a life's work. It was like a 10 year quest for him to get back to doing this. And, you know, there are people talk about, oh, we do beautiful products, we delight customers, this and that and the other all the time here. It's just kind of a language everybody's adopted. But, you know, that game, like the amount of craftsmanship and just love. And attention he put it he wrote the song <laughs> that was a <the> trailer himself, <laughs> and it was a great song, like I mean, like unbelievable. I listened to that song like four thousand times um, and the game, I loved the game like I, I would like play it all day long. I just loved the game, but like there were a couple of really fundamental problems with it. one was uh, that you know, you'd get to the end and then there was nothing else to do. Um, and, you know, and, like, it was so, like, you'd get obsessed with it, you'd play it for 48 hours straight and you were done. Um, and then the other giant problem was he wrote it in Flash. And he wrote it in Flash right before Steve Jobs went on a mission to kill Flash, <laughs> uh, particularly on mobile. And so, like, and rewriting it, you know, not in Flash was a giant task. And then fixing this problem was a giant task. And he, uh, you know, one day he said, "Look, we're not going. We can't get there on the money we have. There's just no way to get there." And like I, like, was so sad <laughs> because I loved that game so much and I wanted to see it, and I couldn't even believe how he could let go of it. And uh, you know, he said, "But like, I think we have something in the company that's a company that's a tool we built to communicate with each other, and it's called Slack." Um, and now Slack, and you guys might not know because uh, nobody went woo, uh, <laughs> is uh, probably the fastest growing enterprise product in the world right now and he just raised money at a billion dollar valuation from really good venture capitalists. And, um, and it's just amazing that he had the emotional capacity to go, we're not going to make it. Uh, and then, and then <laughs> that he had something else. That the <laughs> company is just like, a, you know, twice now. <laughs> like first Flickr and now Slack. He's like the great genius of building games and then creating something else. But
0: uh, it's r- a funny really pattern. Amazing. Slack, yeah. by the way, powers the conference team here that makes all this possible. So yeah. yeah, we're we're yeah. big fans. Um, so it's, uh, one of the stories talk that, that I really liked was the difference between silver bullets and lead bullets. And I don't want I don't want to tell a yes. so I'll let you tell the story. But that it's like kind of an interesting. Contrast the story you just told, because sometimes I feel like one of the things that drove me crazy, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, yeah. is sometimes like just superior execution of the thing you're already doing is really that's what is required. Yeah. And sometimes. Usually that's the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's but like sometimes, you know, you realize I can't rewrite this thing in flight. There's no way to get it done. Like mm-hmm. we can superior execute all we want all day long, you know, twice on Sunday, yeah. and we're not going to get there. And we have to kind of do this abandonment. So first, explain the lead bullets thing, and I'm really curious on thoughts of how can you tell when it's switch time. Yeah. Yeah, so
1: <laughs> lead bullets happening. So when I first got to Netscape, um, I was in charge of the web server product, which um, was a really important product because we knew that Microsoft was kind of going to uh, bundle the browser for free with Windows 95, so we wouldn't be able to charge money for that anymore. And so we were working on the web server, and um, basically uh, we got a hold of Microsoft's upcoming web server, and we benchmarked it against ours. and it, Turned out it was five times faster, um, <laughs> which is not good, by the way. Um, and so, you know, as product manager, I kind of started on this strategy to, you know, figure out like what really innovative features we could add quickly, you know, what partnerships we could strike, something to like save this business, because we were just going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, and I'm working on all this and I kind of sat down with the guy who's running engineering, a guy named, by the name of Bill Turpin, um, who was, you know, he was kind of older and wiser than me. And I took him through all my ideas and I'm like, we're going to do this and we're going to do version control here and we're going to do, you know, this kind of monitoring and all this stuff. And Bill looks at me and he goes, Ben, he's like, those are like a lot of nice, good ideas for silver bullets, but we're five times slower. This one's going to take some lead bullets. Uh, And, you know, that just rung in my head. I was like, I guess, you know, he is exactly right. We are five times slower, doesn't matter what features we have. Um, And that, you know, kind of in a company, every time you start to lose, uh, employees do what I did. They try and go here and there. Like, can we go low end or high end or around the corner, or like change into something else? Um, But the reality is, that you know, oftentimes, like it's very hard work to get the product to where it needs to be and, that, and you can't distract yourself with silver bullets if you're gonna get there. Now, um, there are exceptions. So the, the big exception is um, the kind of market, like if the market isn't there, like if there's really no market for what you're doing um, and you just misjudged it, and this happened to us at LoudCloud, so there was this huge market for cloud computing um, but then there became no market for cloud computing from semi-viable companies after the crash, <laughs> right? Like if you didn't have a giant balance sheet after WorldCom went bankrupt, like it was like, okay, Game you over. know, th- there's just no, no market. And so you can't kind of walk that line if there's no market. But if what's going on is there's a great market, um, but your product just isn't good enough to get it, or like a competitor has a better answer to the market, then you're in a situation where you've built a company to go after, you've built like you've hired every employee to go after a problem and you're not solving that problem as good as someone else or not solving it well enough, the chances of you solving some other problem that your company wasn't built to go solve, if you can't solve that one is like nil. So like you you gotta buck up, (laughs) you gotta like buckle your chin strap, go out on the field, you know, and like go get it done, there is no, uh, you know, there's no silver bullet at that stage. So that's really the difference. It's like, you know, is the market there or not? And if the market's there and we're just not getting it, then, like, we're really better at shutting down the company than pivoting at that right. point. Uh, but, you know, and I, I do think companies give up these days, sometimes too early, because, like, you know, we've put pivot in the, and It's okay to pivot. It's like, no problem. It's like, well, like, pivot is to pivot away from a stupid-ass problem to a good problem, yeah. not to, like... <laughs> you know,
0: go from like, you suck to you're good. That doesn't work that right. way. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Not, that is not a pivot. Yeah. That's just getting it done. Um, we're getting a lot of questions in from the audience, but there are a lot of questions about fundraising. I'm not going to ask Ben any questions about fundraising, so you can just stop sending those in. This is not a, we're not here to talk about VC and how to get Ben's yeah. money out of his wallet. Uh, first of all, there's like a thousand blogs just dedicated to that topic alone, so yeah. uh, w- w- here's a couple questions that have come in. Um, one of which, uh, this is sort of related to investing, but at least it's closer to operations, so I thought we could try it, is how do you know when you're ready to take in that big investment that you talked about, and how do you, you know, when you kind of take that step, how do you prevent investor pressure from damaging the company?
1: Yeah, yeah, that that is a good question. Well, I think that, like and this kind of goes back to Eric's work, but there's there there's two, like, very, and this is an oversimplification, but the, the, there's the phase of like you build the product that, you know, thousand enterprises or ten thousand enterprises want, or like you know, ten million consumers want. Like that's kind of one phase, and that's very very specific work um, that <laughs> is different than building a company to go exploit the fact that you've uh, discovered that product. And I think, at least in my view. Even taking a lot of money uh, before you've kind of built the product that everyone wants is dangerous Um, because basically to get that much money you've set the expectation with your investor that like you've got product market fit and you're gonna go build the company and resisting building the company at that point is just a challenge. And so, and I think this is, you know, one of the things, and I've experienced this as an entrepreneur myself. um, But and it gets very dangerous to think this way. Is like if you don't think of your investors as investors, I.e., like if you don't think of them as like people who you're partnered with to go build your company, you think of them as somebody to, uh, you know, who's got herd mentality, which they do, (laughs) or like somebody to trick into giving you a big check, or somebody to like, match the valuation that your friend from Y Combinator got, um, like, then you're going to actually end up doing yourself a big disservice because you're, you're starting at this weird place of dishonesty. And like, you've really got to have alignment between the company and the investor around where you are um, in order to get, you know, aligned for what you ought to do and the, the enemy Absolute enemy of product-market fit is a lot of people in the company because a lot of people in the company means poor communication. And to walk that straight line I was talking about from like where you are to where you need to go, you need great communication. Like the knowledge of what that problem is and how to solve it has to be universal among everybody working on it and everybody's got to be on the same page. And that's incredibly hard to achieve. And so like, these, are, these are really critical decisions and critical moments in the, in the building of a company.
0: Um, one of the more boring things that you talk about, and we've been all about the boring parts of building startups, is the budgeting process and the way you allocate resources within a company. You've said that you're you know, a big fan of technical founders you know, running companies for the long term, but this is a trap that, that some fall into, that maybe even yourself has fallen into, where you're kind of gamifying the budgeting process, and that can yeah. lead to disaster. Yeah. So about the, budgeting.
1: So, and th- this is one of the more common mistakes that I see made, and it is um, it is brutally it is brutal what it does to you and your company as CEO once you do it. So, a lot of CEOs will run a budgeting process that looks something like this: um, you know, get the team together, figure out, set the goals of the company. Here's what we're going to accomplish in the next year, you know, and then break those goals down, you know, amongst all the teams, and then set metrics around them. Uh, and you know, so that you can measure them and so forth and make them big and bright. And then um, go to each one uh, member of the staff and say, okay, tell me the budget that you need to achieve those goals. That will destroy your company. Like that is the worst thing that you could ever do. Um, I highly recommend against it. It's something I've done. I, I speak from experience. Um, and the reason is uh, you've not, Put an explicit constraint on the process. And so, to the manager, that doesn't sound like, you know, within like a really reasonable, practical kind of scope, um, tell me what you need. What it sounds like is this is a test of your creativity. How big can you make it? How, like, we've given you, how big and bright can you go crush that goal? And then, The managers will then look to each other and it becomes like a kind of creativity and hiring contest because it's like, well, I've got so many ideas, I can hire 50 people. And then (laughs) it's like, well, like if you're in marketing and you're hiring 50 people, then I'm in sales. I should have more people than you, I'm going to hire 100 people. And like all of a sudden your company starts to grow extremely fast uh, and, you know, Extreme fast growth is what basically creates really bad companies because if you've got more new people than existing people, then you know, your values start to drift, your communication starts to break down, your processes don't support that, like everything about building a company starts to fall apart. So much better processes, to, you start with the constraints. You say, okay, first of all, you know, and, and this is really hard for startups because like in a big company, you have the constraint of like, you gotta make money. But in startups, you don't have to make money because you've got like people like venture capitalists, like me, who will give you money. Uh, and so if you don't have to make money, what is the constraint? Uh, and you really have to think very, very hard about that. And you have to create kind of artificial constraints. And artificial constraints are great not only for keeping the communication right, but you get real creativity when you constrain the problem, not like phony baloney creativity but real creativity, because like, how do you create something great within a tight budget framework? So you start with the budget, and the budget constraints, and then (laughs) you say, if you're a great manager, get me that goal within your constraint. Like, that's the problem. And so that's how you really have to think about it. Um, And (laughs) you'll be an elite CEO if you do that here in Silicon Valley, I can (laughs) tell you, because almost nobody gets this right.
0: Yeah. How do you prevent the managers from saying, "Well, those constraints are arbitrary. You just made them up." Well,
1: they are arbitrary.
0: That's it. You just tell them. That's it. Too bad for you. <laughs> yeah. They're my arbitrary <laughs> constraints. <laughs> but you look, for me.
1: And you, like, you can put a rationale behind them. So you can say, like, like one. I think, from a communication standpoint, I'm just going to constrain engineering headcount to no more than double in a year because I know for a fact that I can't get more productivity. Um, out of engineering, like doubling is as fast as I can go. I can triple it, but I'm going to get less productivity than if I double it, or less throughput than if I double it. So you can start with a constraint like that, and then you can say, OK. Uh, th- and then the next thing is the ratio from engineering to sales is not going to go past this mark. So then you've constrained sales, because like, we don't want to be selling more product than we really have or can build. And then you, you So you can kind of lay it out that way. But to some extent, it is arbitrary. And and this is the thing about um, you know the beauty of being cash flow positive is it's a one non-arbitrary constraint uh, and that's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah. So we're going to question this. Okay, let's say you're using lean startup and you have all kinds of metrics used internally to track progress and validated learning. How do you communicate that to your investor? You know, one thing we talk about a lot in lean startup is that entrepreneurs have this terrible habit of spending other people's money, mm-hmm. and then those other people want to know what did I get for my money and what's yeah. the progress. And and we often fall into the trap of kind of dodging accountability by using bullshit metrics. And you know, <laughs> so like I know you this drives you crazy when people uh, you know yeah. show you 30 percent growth on a you know uh, yeah. 25 cent base. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like what kind of metrics do you actually look for when someone's trying to communicate progress in a way that you feel is kind of honest and help you understand that they're learning something of value?
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's different kinds of, and a lot of what I'm looking for early on is just, um, how do you understand your own business? So, like, I'm much less concerned, and this gets to, you know, I'm not answering any fundraising questions, but, like, even in, like, fundraising, like, I'm less concerned that, like, something is growing, like, at, like, some arbitrary rate than, Do you understand what you're doing? Are you, have you thought enough about the business so that you know uh, like what you ought to be measuring? So is what you're presenting like a good representation of what you're doing? Um, And that, you know, because if we've invested in the right team um, and they've got a good understanding of what they are trying to accomplish, like that's really the best you can do in this world. Like there are no, you know, like, you don't work harder and get, like, more sales Like, that's not how startups work, right? right? Like, that's, you know, it's not like, you know, you got to be a tough guy. Demand that, like, you sell more of this product that nobody wants, right? Like, you've got to <laughs> demand that from your sales force. Just it's be like, tougher. Yeah, just be tougher. Just be more hard. Now it's like, it's all nonsense. It's like these weird, like, you know, kind of, like, imaginary management thing. The real thing is, You've got really smart people, like you're really smart, like do you understand what the problem is and what progress would look like? And then what are you doing to get that progress? Is like, that's what you can do. And you kinda kinda gotta focus on the core thing, not the the byproducts or the after effects. And the exhaust. Yeah, you know, like even like, you know, I've been at companies and they'll be like, oh my God, you know, we we quadrupled revenue this quarter. And, you know, I could get all excited about that, but, like, you know, maybe they quadrupled revenue by signing, like, one giant unsustainable deal. Like, that's not even good either, right? Right. So, you you can't, like, go, like, well, the revenue's not there and it's not making progress. It's like, no, like, are they making progress, like, in a very kind of fine-grained evaluation of, like, what's going on and are they really understanding it and they understand, you know, what else is in the market and is there, like, competitive force or you know, are people like coming around to it or not? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's hard and abstract, but like, that's why I, I would say that's the value of having, you know, an investor who you've really communicated with and are honest with, mm-hmm. is that then you can do the right things as opposed to some like weird things. Like, well, the forecast you pitched me on isn't <laughs> the one you're hitting, but like, yeah, had no idea when I wrote that forecast. Like I wasn't even, right, let's be honest like, what about you it. talking about? Yeah, yeah, I, I know that.
0: Yeah, we're getting a lot of questions here about just you, do you have an example? You don't have to name the name of the company, or just like yeah. a, you know, of a situation where somebody did that really well.
1: Um, well, you know, I, the, the, the the very best one, like to me, is Stuart. Like he he measured, he had like everything broken down about that game, and like even though like the game was was like making money, like he he was selling a lot of uh, subscriptions, and he was. Um, you know, he, by a lot of metrics, it was working. Um, there were a lot of users, uh, the reviews were incredible. Um, but the metric that he knew was like critical, like wasn't working, people were leaving. Right. They'd get in, but then they, they would get to the end and then they would leave. And he could have hidden that, right? And kept going and like maybe raise more money against it. Um, but, you know, he, he was just so honest about it. He was so honest with himself and then honest with everybody else, that enabled him to kind of get to, you know, what's ending up to be probably a much bigger opportunity than Glitch ever was.
0: Yeah, all right, we're gonna have one last question. I thought we switched topics. I know this is something that's really important to you. Got a number of questions about this. Uh, What are you at Andreessen Horowitz doing to improve diversity among the companies that you invest in?
1: Yeah, so, um, that is a, I could talk for a long time (laughs) about this topic. Um, Where to start? (laughs) Uh, So, look, um, diversity, I think, uh, kind of starting at the beginning, diversity uh, is something that um, you know a lot of uh, people have opinions on, and, and like the kind of the two biggest opinions on diversity and why, like uh, Silicon Valley is not diverse enough are one, um, just racism and then or sexism, um, but mostly racism, and um, uh, the, you know not enough qualified people from certain groups uh, in terms of like STEM or like technology mm-hmm. understanding. And like both of those, uh, I would say explanations are quite unsatisfactory to me in that, like people are racist, no question. Um, and there are, we could always use more engineers in every group, no question. But like what are you gonna do about that like right now to move the needle? Like what are you gonna do really do about racism? Uh, that's a really hard problem to solve. Uh, and so, like, and then, you know, like, do you really want to work for, like, a bunch of racist, you know, a racist company anyway? So, like, you know, it's just like a one of those problems that, like, maybe it's true, but there's something you can do about it. And, you know, with getting more people into STEM, like, I think that's a great thing to do, but it's really not the only thing to do. Um, and so in looking at it, there's two things that, that we've found that are... Um, I would say really high impact and can be done in the very short term. And the first is network. Um, so if you uh, are like an African-American kid who grew up in you know, Atlanta or grew up in Mississippi or wherever, your knowledge, even if you're a great engineer um, of startup world or Silicon Valley, is nil. Um, and so just being able to build the bridge there in the network, and I'm on the board of a an uh, organization called Code 2040, and all we do is go find um, kind of diverse kids uh, and get them summer internships in Silicon Valley. And the companies, like, and we, we give them programming tests, so they, they're STEM-skilled. Like, you know, don't, make no mistake, like, these guys can program, they pass the test, they get jobs at great companies, they do great in the companies. Um, And all we're doing is just like connecting them in. And so that, so we do a lot of work on that. We do a lot of events to just make people feel welcome and give them access to opportunity um, if they're qualified. And not everybody in Silicon Valley is an engineer either, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of people in sales and marketing and um, HR and all these other kind of groups. And like just getting people access to that is a big deal. So we have a huge focus on that. And then the other thing, which is a much more... Uh, subtle, controversial thing, which we're not as far along on, but I, I've been working on a lot, is um, profiling. So one thing that nobody admits, but every company and every manager and every company does is profile. Uh, and they generally profile to themselves. So, right, like if I'm like given a manager position, I know my strengths really, really well, and I know my culture really, really well, so I'm gonna recognize those strengths Um, when I see a candidate and I'm going to value them because I understand exactly what they are because I'm good at them. If I'm great at writing and you're great at writing, like I can really value that. If I'm like great at writing and you suck at writing, I'm really going to be concerned about that. So it's just like one of those things. And you can see it like in any company, like if you hire, you know, a woman to be head of engineering, you're going to have way more women engineers than if you hire a man to be. Uh, head of engineering. If you hire um, you know, a Chinese person to run marketing, you're going to have more Chinese people in marketing. Like, I guarantee it, Like every organization looks like that. Um, and even in my own company, uh, it looks like that. And so you kind of have to go work harder on getting people to understand their own profile. So, and I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Margaret Wenmacher, who's like one of the great like, marketing people in the universe, works for me. And she or works at Andreessen Horowitz, she doesn't work for me really, I work for her. <laughs> uh, but you know, she runs our marketing group and when she hired her first like, half dozen people, they were all women. And so I went to her, I said, Margaret, like, why are all your employees women? Like, What is it in your profile where no men can get a job working for you? And she looked me right in the eye and she said, helpfulness. <laughs> and I was like, oh snap. Um, <laughs> And the really stunning thing about that is like, we're a venture capital firm, we're in the service business. Like, why doesn't anybody else have the criteria of helpfulness in their profile? Like nobody else, not why, when I went to every single one of my managers, not one person gave a flip about helpfulness. <laughs> and that's a problem. Uh, and so, you know, if you're gonna value, if you're gonna be, uh, get the value of a diverse workforce, if you're gonna be able to get to a broader population of talent, You've gotta value those things in your profile. You can't just go, okay, we need more Hispanic people because no Hispanic person wants that job where they're being hired because of their race. That's an asinine thing to do. But you can start to go, okay, like let's take our Hispanic employees and understand what they think should go into this hiring profile and let's value those things in the candidate population. And then you're going, well, Ben, now you're stereotyping, yes, but like, you know, different cultures have different cultural strengths. They have people from different backgrounds know different things. And if you don't know what those are, then it's really hard to get to a diverse workplace that's fun to work at for the diverse people too because they're valued for what you're hiring them for. And so, um, you know, so a lot of the work that we're doing now is trying to expand the hiring profiles for every position that we hire and every position in our companies to include a diverse set of criteria and train people on that. And then I think you can start to get to like a competitive advantage, which is like in all the things we're doing, like we're just trying to get to a bigger, more talented population than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, I've been like, you know, we're at the beginning, but... Um, Sorry for such a long answer. I can't. it's oh, an important topic. You asked me yeah. that one right at no, the, I the end. I appreciate you
0: going into detail, Ben. It's really just such an honor to have you here. And yeah. thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no, great Thank to you see ben. Thank you ben.